Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So John chapter 6 verse 1 says, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus went to the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. And the Passover festival of the Jews was near. When he looked up, he saw the crowd that was coming to him in the wilderness and said to Philip, what are we to do? Philip answered and said, can six months' wages get him food? That's probably a red flag for the church. 
So as John decides to write an entire gospel that's different from everybody else, but decides to include two things, he was the last to write his gospel, but says, these two stories I need to keep because they're really important. We should pay attention to what's happening and why it's happening. So the primary two things I would like to bring uh, within really this conversation as well as the next teaching that we do um, is, number one, seeing a thread within the comparison that John has drawn, the connection that John has drawn between Jesus and Caesar, and also seeing the connection that John has drawn from Jesus in this story and the Exodus story. One we have to uh, always remember, we don't have time for this podcast today, but one of these days um, we'll spend a service just talking about the importance of the Exodus story. If you don't understand the Exodus story, you won't understand the entire rest of the Bible. It's that important. It is the pinnacle for Israel. It is the ultimate. In fact, it sets the stage for everything else. All of the prophecies of the Messiah that would come were viewed with the hermeneutic or the lens of the Exodus story where God sends a deliverer to, uh, to liberate the oppressed people. So if we don't get that, if we don't pay attention to that, we really aren't going to get anything else that the Bible says. It, it's just that, that big of a deal. That is everything to them. So in the same way that, um, yeah, we just had a couple beers. So it's just, it's that simple. So within this story, we need to see the juxtaposition that John has drawn between Jesus and Rome and Jesus and Exodus, the Exodus story that's there. Um, next week, we will look at the walking on water story and look at what John is doing with that. But suffice to say that both of these miracles figure into the lives of kings and emperors. Both the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, John is drawing a parallel to emperors and kings of Rome. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand the story. It's that important. The Roman emperors demonstrated um, this, um, this type of power, this type of authority um, by distributing grain to the people of Rome. So what the job of Rome to do was to distribute grain or bread to feed the people. So whenever you came into Rome, one of the things that Rome would do is say, now you have bread. The other interesting thing is the emperors also, and we'll, we'll talk about this more next week, of their ability to control the water in comparison to streams. In fact, Caligula, everybody is familiar with that name, Caligula, when he was emperor, actually took and built these um, almost like stands across the Nepalese Bay so that he could ride across them like he was on a chariot. And as he did, he shouted, I am the one who walks upon the waters and provides you with bread. This was before Jesus' miracle. So when people see Jesus providing bread and walking on water, it's drawing an immediate parallel to what they knew emperors were doing. He is always, always, always subverting a, a worldly kingdom with a godly kingdom. He's always doing this thing that says he's showcasing what power looks like and that he has it, and then he lays it down. So where Caligula said, I'm the one who has the authority to distribute bread, and I'm going to keep bread from the poorest of these and make sure that it empowers the, the most powerful. Jesus did the opposite. That's the point. So the sign uh, within this major episode in the gospel begins is uh, and really lays out the idea that John is saying, okay, this, this is an active tradition that we need to keep. The key difference lies not in the narration of the event so much as with what happens as a consequence of that miracle. The synoptic event leads to an increase in the number of people seeking Jesus. John's account provides the catalyst for discourse and dialogue about Jesus' identity that pushes people away. At the end of feeding of 5,000, in the other synoptic gospels, a whole bunch of people want to follow Jesus. In John's account, Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can't partake of me. And what happens? Get more people.
people show up? Turn to your neighbor and say, no. So John's account, he's saying there's a price. It's this kind of thing. So as you probably guess, bread and fish in the first century were both deeply, deeply symbolic. So the whole context that I would like to utilize today is scarcity or abundance. So we have been given, whether we know it or not, a mindset of scarcity. In our culture, you don't believe me yet, hopefully in about 30 minutes you might. In our culture, we have a mindset of scarcity. A mindset of scarcity is why we build our portfolios for our retirement and don't give more than 10% of our money away at the time. We do that so that God will bless our 401k. That's scarcity. We do things in our culture like... um, We want to have an army big enough to defend our prosperous nation. That's scarcity. We do things like tell people that God will bless you, but God will only bless you if you do these right things. That's scarcity. We can't imagine a God of abundance who has infinite grace, infinite mercy, infinite kindness, infinite, 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 that he could pour out on undeserving sinners. So we have to qualify that they must qualify to receive it because we're saying God's abundance, God's grace, God's mercy is actually lacking. To qualify somebody to receive something is literally to say because we can't give it all away for free because there's not what? Enough. So... What Jesus is doing is he is showcasing a God of abundance. The whole thing Jesus does. Why does Jesus go into, as we looked last Sunday, into a pagan worship center and heal somebody? Because he doesn't have to prove that his God is right. When you're trying to prove that your God is right, when you're trying to build something, you're functioning in a scarcity mentality. I want to make what I have bigger and better. When you go and just give things away and ask them to do nothing to receive it or nothing in return now that they have received it, that's an abundance worldview. So when we see this, we have to start, and as you can imagine, there's context that's deeply important to why Jesus, why didn't Jesus make um, meatballs and queso? Why did Jesus do bread and fish? That's really, really important. So. As you've imagined, there's probably a first century um, context that is deeply symbolic. Both of these things, fish and bread, spoke at that time especially of how you feed your family, which involves economy, and that involves government, and that involves institutions, and that involves systems and structures and power. So, locationally, the story is centered near the Sea of Galilee. This was an incredible resource for the people of Israel. The Sea of Galilee was a big, big deal. Because up until that point, for hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands and thousands of years, the people of, of, uh, of that region would be able to fish to provide for their family. There was free enterprise, if you will. So you could go out and fish if you wanted to as an individual, just jump in your little personal boat. I think they call those a John boat. I don't know if it was thoughtful, a John boat. But it, uh, you could go out, do some fishing, and feed your family. Or the people that made their living off of that. And then they had barter systems in place to where everybody had enough. Because the Sea of Galilee had enough fish to feed everybody. Until just stops. Because what happened is, at some point, the world system can't let it be open for everybody. They have to have control. So what happened is... Uh, Herod decided because he was in bed with Rome, not literally, uh, but he decided that he wanted to really impress Caesar. So he decided that the Sea of Galilee area is now going to be built, uh, this new city called the City of Tiberias. And they actually changed the name of the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Tiberias, as we just read. Tiberius is a Roman emperor, and so, so Herod said, I want to pay tribute to you, and I want to build this city. And he modeled the city to be an exact replica of Rome to showcase his allegiance. Keeping in mind, remember, Herod's a Jew. 
Herod is a Jew that is betraying his own people on behalf of power. Does anybody see any parallels to the world culture we still live in? It still happens where people are willing to do whatever it takes to have power. And so he decided that he would build this city, this incredible city called Tiberias, but now you've got to pay for it. So the way he paid for it was setting up a taxation system where now the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, is completely controlled by Herod. So all the sea in, or fish in the sea belongs now to the government. So now you're allowed to fish, but you have to pay for a license to be able to do so. You, there was all these hoops you had to jump through. And then 90% of the fish that you, uh, that you took in, you actually had to give to the government. 90% taxation rates. We think Bernie's that. 90% taxation rates. So they, they uh, that was the idea of what had happened at that time. So fish was a big deal. So when Jesus decides to, to multiply fish for everybody, he was actually showcasing a different type of power whereby it is abundance and whereby it is distribution to all who are in need. So Jesus is saying, I know that what Rome did is they came in and took control and they used Herod and said, now all this belongs to us and you can have just barely enough to survive, literally just barely enough to survive. What Jesus did showcases a system where people are not being oppressed by power, they're being served by power. Please hear what I just said. The kingdom of God is always a system that doesn't oppress with power, but it serves with power. That's the whole thing. You could literally close the Bible. That's it. That's the message. A God who serves with his power, a God who pours out with his power, not ever oppresses. There's no requirements. There's no um, quid pro quo. There's no tit for tat. This is a God who serves abundantly and with complete outpour. So, this is the subversive message that they would have understood as soon as Jesus says, okay, I'm working with fish. They're going, wait, what? Because Jesus should have, now this is another conversation we won't get into, but for all the people that get really wound up about how we should always bow the knee to government and we have to make sure that we respect government authority at all costs, and I'm not saying that we should just be rebels, but they really overplay the card of even Jesus paid his taxes. Remember, he went and told the man, now the fish is mine, so does my kingdom. Well, that might be true, but every time Jesus used fish and multiply it to feed people and distribute in abundance, he was literally stealing from Rome. He didn't give 90% of the fish to Rome. So there is a measure where you stand against and resist. I'm not suggesting somebody shouldn't pay their taxes. Okay? I understand, and I pay my taxes. I'm just saying, and ultimately, the job of a prophet is to critique an injustice. And Jesus did that. So I get really worn out when we in the land of the free and the home of the brave make these big deals about how we need to um, pledge our allegiance to America, pledge our allegiance to the leaders that are there. I think we need to pray for them and love them and bless them. But ultimately, my allegiance is with the king. Sorry. It's funny to me how often we say things like, I'm just a sojourner, a passenger here, I'm a citizen of another place. But then we get all teary-eyed when God bless the USA comes on the radio. We're not from here. My allegiance can't be pledged to America because I've already pledged it. It's just the way it goes. Uh, this further shows we should take care when throwing things around about government. So the next thing that happens, what do we have to see? So we've got the Sea of Galilee. Now we've got the bread. So the, he's using the fish, so he's clearly subverting Rome at this point and saying all of this belongs to God. That's what he's saying. The next thing that's happening is life is bound in this provision of bread and fish, which both come from creation. We know now that the planet, Mother Earth, creation, whatever you want to call it, is capable of producing enough food to feed every living creature on the planet. Do you realize world hunger 
is a human problem, not a food problem. There is enough food on the planet for everybody to have plenty. The problem is we have systems in place that function in greed. A greed system is based out of a scarcity mindset. What if there's not enough for me and mine? So we stockpile. Costco is built on this idea, otherwise you couldn't buy a year's supply of Cocoa Puffs. I mean, even think about the idea of what did the church do when we thought Y2K was going to happen? Was that a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? We stockpiled green beans and army food ration meals. People were buying like, um, uh, what was it? People were buying tanks. Like the stuff you take to space. This is crazy talk. And, and so there are literally people today that still are not having to buy bottled water yet because they're still living off of Y2K rations. And so that idea is a scarcity mindset, and it's deeply ingrained into us. So what Jesus is showing with both bread and fish is that this is a God who has invested God's self in, into a creation that can supply in abundance. The problem is we're raping her. The problem is we're not caring for creation in a way that can allow it to continue to be self-sustaining and providing through what God has caused there to be. So now what we have is we have the idea of destroying places, and we have the idea of let's get as much money we can out of this. We're not having a sustainable method, even grazing, um, sustainable methods of where we don't hurt the earth in order to try and get as much corn as we can out of it, as much wheat as we can out of it, or as much vaccine as we can out of it. I don't know. Whatever we're getting. Jesus shows him just a completely different mindset. And so the Bible is at the beginning setting the standard for how the house is run. This is the mandate given to creation in the Genesis story. A theme throughout the scripture for those listening is this question. Does everybody have enough? The theme throughout the Bible for everybody listening to God is, does everyone have enough? So to me, we can't brush past the humanity of this story to get into the miracle power of Jesus. We have to sit with the need, the frustration, and the lack that is actually a part of every human story before we can move into how Jesus went hocus pocus and now there's enough food and bread for everybody. We miss the point. Adventures in missing the point. Because then we just think that somehow then we try to figure out how we could qualify for that miracle thing. Rather than making ourselves the Jesus that sees from a different viewpoint of everybody having enough. So we're then trying it because surprisingly, guess where I always tend to focus miracles? Who has two thumbs and always wants a miracle? This guy. Right? I mean, that's the way we work. Like, I need a miracle. And so what ends up happening is we live out of that framework. So to me, we cannot brush past this story. This is first and foremost a story about a group of people, parents, whose children had no food. Hungry babies. This should get really real. Hungry babies is what this story is. You see where we end up? We're over here with Miracle Land Jesus. Jesus is back here with the starving babies. In it, we read about a people who are hungry and dealing with a culture that we can still find all around us today. It is all about, Pastor Bill's going to officiate this one, distribution. It's about systems controlling the flow of resources, oppressing those in need. Somebody somewhere is not properly allowing the bread to be distributed to everybody that needs it. 
this miracle centers around distribution of bread and fish for everyone who are hungry. And I realize that in our current culture, a word like distribution can set people off or trigger something in them. Distribution of wealth sounds a whole lot like this, that, that S word. See, there's two words in our culture, in our Christian culture, the, the, the H sound, charismatic. And in our political culture, the F word, socialist. Pretty much the same thing. And they're thrown around pretty glibly if we're really honest with ourselves. So as soon as we say a word like distribution, everybody's capitalist antennas go up. And so what I have to look at here, what I think we have to pay attention to, is that in our culture, the culture of the kingdom is always going to be countercultural to the culture of the world. It is going to be countercultural to the world system. And so we have to understand that especially in a case in our culture where capitalism is the worldview of society, there is no religion more powerful in our country than the religion of capitalism. Period. It is a religion. And so what happens is we've all been raised with this lens, which makes a virtue and a goal out of accumulation, consumption, and collecting. Our culture gives us a lens that makes that goals in life, something to strive for that I could accumulate, consume, and collect. I'm not suggesting there are not good things that can happen economically through this system, and I'm frankly not suggesting that I haven't benefited from the system of capitalism. I truly have. I'm simply suggesting this isn't the system of the kingdom, and we must be careful to not allow the God of this world to influence the way we see the kingdom of God. If we are honest, the religion of American capitalism is the only obvious storyline that all of our children see. If we're honest, most of us were at some point disciplined into a I produce, therefore I am, and I consume, therefore I am mindset. I know that Descartes gave us the I think, therefore I am in the age of enlightenment. In the age of consumerism, it's I produce, therefore I am. And if you produce enough, the benefit of producing enough is to be able to do, what's the next one? Consume. It's a consumer society. We're all consumers. So it's about more and more and more. I mean, most of us have, I literally, I looked the other day, I have four or five pairs of blue jeans. Right? I mean, some of us like have multiple, I have, I, I told my sister a story on me the other day for Christmas, that one year she told me a pair of jeans that she wanted, I thought this was a good idea, by the way, I just would like to clarify it, she told me she wanted a pair of jeans, I thought if she likes the jeans, why not buy her two pair of these jeans, because she really likes them, if you like them, one's good, two's gooder, clearly, this is how things work, so they were the same jeans, but if she likes those jeans, like, so when you're looking at this, we have been discipled, and I'm using that word on purpose. We're discipled of this thing. The view, this view, coupled with hyper-individualism, creates a false sense of personal and individual accomplishment, wherein then... I deserve what I have because somehow I earned it. So when you couple capitalism with the hyper-individualism of this culture, then it is about your personal accumulation, your personal hard work. I mean, the highest value, the, the most praise that you could laud on an American uh, as, a, as a business owner is to say they are a self-made man. Right? And let me just be clear, that doesn't exist. I mean, you remember, it almost, it, the, the biggest thing that came out of the Obama and Romney political campaign was when Obama, Obama made the statement, if you own a business, you didn't do it on your own. And so it, they completely took that, that phrase and it became a thing. Now, I'm not in 
argument one way or the other, but that tells us how sensitive we are to the idea that I didn't do it. It's mine. I worked hard. So we add, add this idea of what seems to be hyper-individualism to it. So then I've earned it, so it's mine. This juxtaposition sometimes spoken and other times implied is that someone else that doesn't have, they don't have but based on their lack of personal effort. You have based on your personal effort. If they don't have, it's their lack of personal effort. This is capitalism. And this is what Jesus came to upend. It's deeply saddening to see this is prevalent within the American church. In many cases, the Jesus movement today has been co-opted by certain businesses and economic business and economic ideas. However, in the Jesus question, uh, Jesus tradition, the question always was: Does everybody have enough? The babies are starving. Does everybody have enough? That's the Jesus message. That's the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't ask them first, are you going to follow me? Before he turns fishes and loaves into plenty for them. Jesus doesn't ask for a tithe. Jesus doesn't ask for your greatest seed, for your greatest need. Where people are buying the miracle of the day. Jesus doesn't do this. The Herodian dynasty used bread and fish as symbols of their power and their ability to provide. This is why the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, has such a profound political implication to it. In their ears, it was about a new ordering of things. The kingdom of God is an announcement about a new ordering of things. And everybody that participates gets to participate in the new ordering of things. This is an ordering of abundance where God has plenty, where there is more than enough. When we start, here's where it gets real, and this is where capitalism comes home to roost in our, in our church. Not our church, Jesus' church. When we start with a God view of needing to earn God's blessing, provision, and grace, it establishes the basis of God as self-sustaining. How many people were taught that if you didn't tithe, God wouldn't bless the rest of your finances? So what about the literally the mom who's working two jobs to provide for her two kids? She's, she's single. She's going to work and working 80 hours a week. And literally every single penny, it comes down to, do my kids get to eat lunch at school or do I tithe? We would tell her, well, if you'll have faith and tithe, then God will bring more money in to pay your kids' lunch. That is a scarcity worldview. That is not a God of abundance. That is not a God of plenty. That is a God of quid pro quo. That is a capitalist God that says in some way, it is you have to earn it to get it. This resource of God is somehow scarce. And I've been told this in, in, in varying ways, that the resources, the blessings, the abundance of God, spiritual gifts are only given out to people that are good servants and deserving of it. So if I'm deserving of it, if I've done the right thing, then God will bless me. He'll pour out spiritual gifts, more anointings, whatever it is. I mean, how many times have we started off, you know, before we would do something on behalf of God? God tells us to pray for somebody or pray for somebody or whatever. I remember the first thing I would do was ask is ask for forgiveness for any sin. Because if I had sin in my life, God wouldn't hear my prayer. I had to earn the power or the anointing to do what God was asking me to do. This is the God view that we have. The church's version of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you would just work a little harder, 
if you would just be a better, if you would just pray more, if you would just read more. I, you, how many people have disqualified themselves when somebody is in need that you know you're supposed to pray for because you realize that maybe you've lost your temper that day, you hadn't prayed, you hadn't studied, you, you had done something, so you shamed yourself out of caring for somebody who's hurting because you felt like you weren't deserving of God's blessing upon what it was that you were doing. Absolutely, I've done that. That is a scarcity worldview. That is a God who can't give to sinners because there's not enough. Jesus is doing something entirely different. And so when we start with that worldview, it sets the stage and leads us into a worldview of scarcity where I must accumulate and protect my accumulation at all costs. Here's where we get back into the really interesting part about how our culture works. So when we start with a God, if the God, the creator, the one that put all this in motion is a God of scarcity where I have to earn it and do the right thing and be a good servant to get his blessing, then how much more do I think about my own goods that I have to earn it and accumulate them? And then to some degree, I then have to protect my accumulation. Fiscal responsibility. Hyper fiscal responsibility. It gives way to the fear that there might not be enough and at its most sinister gives license for violence to protect what is mine. This way of seeing has blinded us so that we now tend to falsely assume more must be better. ingrains in us the belief that there isn't enough to go around. This determines much, if not most, of our American politics. In the USA, there's never enough in the budget for food, health care, education, arts, and even at times basic infrastructure. But the budget is rarely, if ever, questioned for war or military engagements. There's never enough in our budget to make sure that everybody has food, to make sure that the roads are good, to make sure that people are getting a really quality education. But it's almost, almost never happens where people question the budget for war. Why? Because war defends and protects what I've accumulated. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Jesus is doing something different here. Jesus is inviting them to be part of a proper distributing of bread and fish, a culture where everybody gets to eat. Where Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, performs this miracle for a group of migrant tear warehouse. This is the big reveal. Why were there 5.5,000 men, more than that, families and children, out in the desert? Jesus performs this miracle for a group of migrant, likely homeless people in the middle of the wilderness. It is screaming metaphors to us. In his tradition, they have stories about bread being miraculously provided when people are being liberated from slavery and wandering homeless through the desert. The Exodus story is being retold right in front of us. They're being given bread to eat in the wilderness, which is just like the manna that fell from heaven when people who had just been liberated from an oppressive and unjust system. Jesus is doing something very specific. He's reaching back into the history of his people and he's inviting them to remember that when they're liberated from slavery, they are provided for. Everything about his people's history was about a new vision of what it means to be human. A new society, if you will. Now, go and liberate others. Literally, the message of Exodus is you've been freed from oppressive slavery whereby you were a human doing and not a human being. Whereby you determined your worth by how many bricks you produced for Pharaoh. 
and he says, you have been liberated from that system. Now you go liberate. That's the message of Jesus. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It is about a, a, a equitable and just society. So over and over again, they're reminded, you've been brought out. Now go liberate others. This was always what Jesus was doing. He was reminding them in word and deed of their legacy of liberation. Many scholars suggest that these people would have been a group of migrants. The 5,000 people would have been a group of migrant refugees living in the desert. They had fled the cities based on the fact that there was no food for their children. See, like what we imagine is that Jesus is this guy. He's walking around. But it's, it's more of an imagination of like paparazzi. They're just following Jesus. No, that's not how the story's told, and that's absolutely not how the story would have worked. It is literally a story where Jesus is out in the wilderness, and he comes upon this group that are trying to just live in the desert. Does this sound like something that is relatable to the world we're living in today? See, we imagine that what qualified them is Jesus' fame made them want to follow Jesus out into the desert. That's not how the story works. Jesus goes out into the desert and comes upon a mass of people who were running from oppressive tyranny. And he gives them what they've been searching for, food. And if you saw uh, two weeks ago the picture of the father and daughter floating dead, drowned in the river, ago in our country, you sent a man to prison, sentenced a man to prison for leaving jugs of water out on the other side of the border so that people who were walking through the desert would have water and not die. This is all around us. Jesus walked into the wilderness, walked into the desert, and came upon. These people were not searching for Jesus because, because they, you know, it's like they're following him around. They've heard of him, no doubt. He shows up and they're like, oh, we've heard about you. You're the guy who does signs and wonders. We're starving. And so Jesus provides in abundance. And in doing so, totally upends the world system of scarcity. The world system of scarcity says, I have power, so I get to determine who gets what. Jesus says, I have power, so I give it all. That's Jesus. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The vast majority of people throughout history have been poor, disabled, or oppressed. I'm going to say that again. This is actually studied in sociology studies. The vast majority of people who have ever lived in history have been poor, disabled, or oppressed. And we would have experienced history in terms of a need for change. If we understand this, the people who wrote the books and controlled the social institutions, however, have always been the comfortable ones at the top. So the people writing history books are not the poor or disabled or oppressed. The people writing the history books are the ones who are the beneficiaries of a world system of power. And so Jesus is showing us a different way. Much of history has been recorded from the side of the winners. I'm sure if we wrote Amer read American history written by Native Americans, it would be a different history. I'm sure if you read American history as written by people brought here, African Americans brought here in slave trade, it would be a different history. So Jesus comes to show us this, the unique revelation of the Bible, of the Bible, the gospel of the kingdom, is an alternate version of history from the bottom, from the side of the enslaved, the dominated, the oppressed, the poor, culminating with Jesus himself pouring himself out. The flow of grace through us is largely blocked when we're living inside a worldview of scarcity, a feeling that there's just never enough. There's not enough of God. There's not enough of me. There's not enough food. 
And there's not even a time when we think enough mercy and grace to include and forgive everybody in front of us. They have to first become like me. And then grace and mercy is accepted. A foundational abundance within reality is clearly exemplified in it. And many other stories in the gospels. Notice in almost every case, the good old apostles who represent our world view of scarcity are advising Jesus against it. Keeping in mind, the, the apostles, like, you know, the ones who led what it means to live in faith, they're telling Jesus this is a bad idea. They're the guys that are saying, Lord, we can't provide. Jesus is like, hey, how are we going to give food to all these people now? We can't do that. They didn't get to live that for themselves. Jesus is doing something different. Jesus is trying to move them from a worldview of scarcity to a worldview of abundance. Because in the end, and notice, in the end of all of these stories, there's always food left over. Have you ever wondered why? If Jesus, let let me just pose to you a hypothetical. If Jesus could provide enough food for 5,000 men to do double that, let's say wives, there's 10,000, let's say three kids for each family. 20,000 people and Jesus can provide enough food for all of them. And there'd be, if he can do that, don't you think he could have got the math right? Like, Tosh can, Tosh understands when she works with her mom to cater a wedding to be to be able to figure out how much food we need to have for 150 people. They know how to do that math. Jesus is providing food out of thin air and can't do the math on how much people will eat. But there's baskets and baskets left over. Why? Because he's proving the point of abundance. He's proving the point that there's not just enough for you. There's more than enough for everyone. Love always has more than enough of itself to give. It is an inherent, eternal overflow. I wrote that yesterday morning. I'm so excited I went back to school. So this is what Jesus is showing us, and this is what John is writing in these stories. And I would like to suggest, yes, we should be like super excited about the miracle part. We should be high-fiving Jesus because he can provide for us miraculously when we've turned to him over and over and over and over and over again. He always does. It's good. But that's just scratching the surface. The question then is, does our world view change? Because the very next time the disciples, we find the disciples, they're on a boat with Jesus, and they're worried about what's happening next. And a couple guys in Capernaum are saying, I'm not sharing with the guys who don't have it. Scarcity. So, God, we thank you. Love, we thank you that you are a God of abundance. That you are a God who of more than enough. That you are a God who pours out infinitely. And you recognize that You are in the business of changing our memories, changing our hearts, of calling us into repentance where we change our minds, not the way we think. And we ask you that you would cause us to feel the heart of compassion, the heart of love that leaps at the very center of these stories. 
that he's showing us what's the really like, that it's not a God who is good for some, but a God who's good for all. This is not a God who blesses the righteous. This is a God who blesses his children with the double whammy. This is a God who gives and gives and gives with this outpouring of what God is. So we ask you that you would help us to see from that that viewpoint. Help us to exercise wisdom. Help us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, that we would operate in ways that continue to to see the grace of the moment and that we would be um, interested in what you're doing, that we wouldn't look past the story trying to find ourselves as the hero in the midst of it, but we would find in the story where we can serve better, where we can pour out better, where we can tell a story, where we can give of ourselves better, and that we can identify the image of God in our people. And when we find somebody in the wilderness whose bellies are empty, help us to not be people that give canned answers to that person. Help us to buy them dinner. Help us to feed those who are hungry. Help us to be those who stand close and operate in good religion where we take care of the widow and the orphan. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Love everybody. Have a great rest of your day. We will see you on Thursday. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.